We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning. As we pick back up with our study of 1 Corinthians, after a couple of weeks of you're getting to hear from Mark Kohler, I, in God's providence, got to hear from him last week as well. And was very blessed by his preaching. We return now to our study of 1 Corinthians. We are still in chapter 1. We'll pick up this morning with verse 18 and read through verse 25. This is the Lord's word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Corinth. And so this is indeed the infallible, the inspired, the therefore inerrant word of God. So let us attend with reverence to that word as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading its exposition, and its hearing. The last Sabbath that I was here, we read the words of Paul in verse 17, uh, where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. Paul was not interested in sounding wise to the inhabitants of Corinth who were used to hearing well-trained Greek rhetoricians, professional speakers. This continues, of course, to be a temptation for us. So we find in the church that there are many who profess Christ but want also to sound wise in the eyes of the world, and this has, in my mind, uh, in my observation, uh, has led to a great deal of corruption of Christian institutions of learning, for example. And this is not a new problem. Paul dealt with it in his own day. Indeed, in many Greek cities like Athens and Corinth, and remember Paul had been in Athens right before he went to Corinth, a popular leisure activity 
was going to hear orators speak and going to hear philosophers debate in public. Especially when it came to those professional orators, the success of the speaker rested as as much in the beauty of his words and the way that he crafted his speech, the style of his rhetoric, as in the logic of his arguments. Now, when it came to philosophers debating, uh, they both needed to sound smart and also uh, be able uh, to to make a logical argument that, at least in the mind of the audience, uh, was more logical than the other. But when it came to those uh, public orators, it often uh, was more that their speech sounded beautiful than that they made a well-reasoned argument. Now, of course, there is a place for making a well-reasoned argument in the church. There is a place for making a well-reasoned argument as we explain the gospel to the world. Peter tells us to do that very thing in 1 Peter 3.15. He tells us to be uh, ready to give an answer when called to account for the hope that we have. Paul makes clear, logical arguments in this very letter. Furthermore, the reader or listener must apply logic in order to understand what Paul is saying, even in this very passage. So Paul's point here is not to dismiss logic altogether, but he made it a point, he says, when he was in Corinth, in particular, proclaiming the gospel there, he made a point to trust the message of the cross of Christ itself to do its own work. When he presented that message, he actually made a point, because of the context he was in, of avoiding the lofty techniques of professional rhetoric, the fancy turns of phrase, the formalized argumentation, so that when people were converted to Christ, it would be apparent that that had not happened because Paul was a persuasive speaker. Paul was not some kind of motivational speaker or con man or anything of the kind, anywhere on that spectrum, simply trying to persuade people of a message. But rather than let it appear that this rested on the persuasive talents of a man, Paul avoided that kind of argumentation so that it would be seen that it was the very power of God that had changed these people's lives. That's the statement Paul is explaining when he begins today's passage with the word for. That that word for, if you're curious, it's the Greek word gar. Uh, It indicates that uh, the statement Paul made in verse 17 is true because of the things he's about to say. You'll notice a a few more fours in the passage, and they culminate with a because. It's a similar Greek word, hoti, has kind of overlapping meaning at the beginning of verse 25. The fours in verses 19 and 21 are that same word, uh, but just so you know, I'm not... uh, trying to pull the wool over your eyes. The four in the New King James Version of verse 22 is is a word we would typically translate as and, but there are grammatical reasons why 
translators would choose to, to, to make it for here in English, and that's, that's a sound translation. That because at the beginning of verse 25 actually indicates that the verse is further explaining what had come before it. So uh, we see here the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That fact is demonstrated by the related fact that the cross of Christ is the power and wisdom of God to those who are being saved. So verse 24 is actually the grammatical focus of the passage. The cross of Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Several things can be said about that from this passage. That message of the cross, number one, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Number two, it exposes human folly. Number three, it must not be changed or watered down. And number four, it is God's chosen means of saving his people. So again, in verse 24, Paul speaks of the message of the cross, which, as he said in the previous verse, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, saying, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. In other words, it is Christ. This message is Christ to them. The power of God and the wisdom of God. The message of Christ's crucifixion, his atoning death on behalf of his people, is to those who are being saved, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is, it demonstrates how powerful and wise God is. Since it is believed by those whom God calls to himself, the message can be said to be Christ himself, even as Paul says here, to those who are being saved. For it is through that message, through faith, when you hear that message, that a person is united to Christ. And so, in that sense, It is Christ himself when you hear the message, if you are one who is being saved. And we saw before how important it is that we understand that one of the major points Paul makes in this letter, that our union with Christ also gives us union with one another through him. And so that message, which is God's ordained means of giving us that union with Christ, is Therefore, in a sense, Christ himself. And so by the fact that God saves in Christ through this message of his atoning death, God's power and wisdom are displayed by the message of the cross. Now that's antithetical to human wisdom, because that doesn't seem wise in man's eyes. Now this fact that God's power and wisdom are on display through the message of the cross becomes more apparent as we dive into the passage wherein Paul fleshes this out. We see, number one, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In John 3, verse 18, we learn, He who believes in him, God's Son, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
the human race in our fallen state is already condemned. And Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 5.12, he says, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. We were all perishing in our natural state. But God has chosen to rescue some of the perishing from that fate, from that destiny. Those are the ones being saved in verse 18. You'll notice the passive form of the verb there. God is the one working this salvation. We are its passive recipients. We are being saved. We're not saving ourselves. We don't work to save ourselves. We don't contribute to it. We contribute nothing to our status before God. He is the one doing the saving. But for those who are not called, who are not saved, to those who are perishing, the message of the cross, which is the power of God to those of us who are being saved, it seems to be utter foolishness. Again, this is the state of the natural man. Don't be surprised when you encounter it. In Romans 1.17, Paul says, The gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Those who do not believe see it as foolishness. Then beginning in verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul speaks of the general condition of fallen mankind. For the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So in other words, you should be able to see enough in creation around you to know that there's a God, but the vast majority of the human race, unless our eyes are opened by God to that fact, we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. We really deep down know the difference, but we refuse to see it. So being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When left in our fallen state, we simply hate God. We reject him for who he really is. We suppress the truth of what should be undeniable to us in our unrighteousness. And so we reject the gospel of Jesus Christ as foolish, even though it actually displays the wisdom and power of God. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 22, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. Uh, Think of Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Miracle after miracle demonstrated who Jesus was. But the unbelieving among the Jews kept demanding another sign. That wasn't enough yet, Jesus. Do it again. Do something bigger. To the hard-hearted, no sign, no matter how many or how powerful, is going to be enough. Greeks, on the other hand, rested their belief 
about what was true and their own power to reason. I'm aware that in preparation for TFY, the students are being asked to read J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. And, uh, and uh, Lily's been uh, reading through that lately, I believe. And the point that Machen is making in that book, the main point, is that liberalism, liberal Christianity, is actually a different religion. It's not actually Christianity. And part of the problem with it, or the major root of the problem, is the notion that human reason is enough to judge God, or to judge whether God's word should be believed. That's not a new problem. Greeks rested their belief about what was true in their own power to reason and were not aware or refused to be aware of the limitations of their reason, that their reason was affected, damaged by their sin. So therefore, verse 23 says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Because the hard-hearted among the Jews rejected the even clear exposition of scripture which showed that the Messiah must suffer because they rejected all the evidence of the miraculous signs which demonstrated that Jesus is that Messiah. Think of the the people who saw that Jesus had actually raised Lazarus from the dead. And the reaction of some was, can this be anyone but the Messiah? The reaction of others was, we better kill Lazarus because this is convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah. Their hearts were hard. They rejected all the evidence of the miraculous signs which demonstrated that Jesus was actually who he said he was. His crucifixion was a stumbling block to them. How could this be? Even though it was clearly predicted in Scripture, but they refused to see that that's what Scripture was telling them. The word for stumbling block there is literally the Greek word from which we get our English word scandal. It's scandalous to them. It scandalized them. It was so offensive, it tripped them up on the notion of a crucified Savior. This isn't the Messiah we wanted. And so it wasn't the Messiah we expected. In Isaiah 8.14, this was predicted. In Isaiah 8.13-15 reads this way, The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. As a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. And so, of course, Psalm 118 speaks of the stone which the builders rejected that had now become the chief cornerstone. That's Jesus Christ. To the Greeks, the notion that a God would willingly let himself be put to death, or that a God would send his beloved son to die a humiliating death, painful death on a cross for the sake of mere mortals? Well, that's just nonsense. Indeed, at this period, many Greek philosophers would even find the notion that a God who is a spirit 
would become flesh to be unthinkable. So to the Greeks, the message of the cross was utter foolishness. The word that Paul uses there for foolishness is the root from which we get our word moron. It is not a compliment to be called a moron. To the Greek mind, only a moron could believe something like that. And that attitude can still be found among the world around us today, can't it? People who think you must be an absolute fool, you must be an idiot, you must be a rube, only uh, people who don't understand how the word re- world really works, people who are uneducated and silly, only those people could possibly believe this. So just look at how Hollywood depicts the average evangelical Christian these days, and you'll see that attitude very prevalent. And so, number two, the message of the cross exposes human folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but actually it exposes how foolish those who reject it really are. Look at verse 19 and 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. It's a quote from our earlier scripture in Isaiah 29. Where, Paul asks, is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The most wise among the unsaved, and there are, we're, not, we're not trying to say we're the smart ones here and they're not. There are very intelligent people who reject the gospel. People with a lot of brain power. Right? <clears throat> the most wise among the unsaved, the most educated, the most skilled in debate, would never allow that God would do things in such a way as he has actually done them. When he sent his son to die for his people, they would consider that notion impossible. To which God said, you think so? I'll do it that way. Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14, verse 19, to show this was always God's plan. God always had in mind, not that that's the sole purpose or even the main purpose for doing things this way, but it was part of the plan. To carry out his plan of salvation in such a way that it would expose just how wrong even the wisest human being is in terms of purely human wisdom. The wisest human being is not enough. Our wisdom, our intelligence is not enough to save us. Our sin corrupts even our greatest intellectual abilities. This is why you will never argue someone into being a Christian. We should be ready to give a defense, to give an answer when called to account for the hope that we have. And God will use that in the hearts of those whom he is saving, whom he is convicting. And you never know who that is. So be ready to do that. But never think that you will actually argue an unbeliever into belief. That's been very helpful for me over the years to remember that because I know how many times I set out more to win an argument than to win the soul of the person I was discussing things with, presenting the gospel to. Human wisdom blinded by sin 
is never going to be enough, and compared to God's wisdom, it's just utterly foolish. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, verses 22 and 23, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. All manner of idolatry came out of the fact that people will use their intellect to get around who God really is and what that demands. And so God chose a message that would be so offensive, so scandalous, so foolish to the natural man as the message of the cross to expose the folly of mankind. We will use the great wisdom and intellect that God has given us to do very foolish things. And God exposes that through the message of the cross. The wisest human being in terms of fallen human wisdom would not have concluded that this was how God should do things. And that this is how God would choose to rescue sinners. And so by exposing human folly in this way, God displays his own power and wisdom. He's a lot smarter than we are. Paul explains in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's a very interesting turn of phrase. So since in the wisdom of God, so because of God's wisdom, the world through its own wisdom couldn't actually know God. God decided to use something the world would think was foolish to even further expose just how unwise our so-called wisdom really is. In God's wisdom, he planned that mankind would never be able to achieve salvation from our fallen state, from our sins, from our death, by wisdom. We're not going to think ourselves into heaven. Many a false religion, many a vain philosophy, many a process of invention have sought to overcome the futility of life without God, the consequences of sin, the miseries of the world, even death itself. And in God's common grace, mankind has applied what we've learned to alleviate some of the miseries of living in this world, but we'll never overcome them. We'll never overcome the curse for sin. We'll never, through our invention, through our philosophies, stave off death indefinitely. There's a reason that a society made perfect by human effort is called utopia. Utopia means nowhere, no place. There never will be such a place. Human beings will not create a society by our own wisdom that is perfect. Indeed, short of the new heavens and new earth, no matter how good things might get under the rule of the gospel, they won't be perfect. There is no such place as a perfect world until God intervenes and makes it perfect. Attempts to do this through just the idea of, to use one vain philosophy, socialism. Think of that. Not to mention all the other vain philosophies of man. Attempts just 
to make a perfect world through socialism have crashed and burned over and over again, ending in greater misery, not less, for generations. And you want to see how God exposes the foolishness of men. Uh, look at how many people think today, socialism will work this time. I keep kicking a brick wall and breaking my toe, but the next time it won't break my toe. Economies destroyed, millions murdered because they stood in the way of collectivization, and people want to keep trying it. God chose a way that human beings would never have thought up and thereby exposed human folly. God has chosen the message of the cross to achieve salvation, which is why, number three, the message of the cross must not be changed or watered down. Because it looks foolish to the world, that will always be a temptation. We don't want to look dumb to everybody around us, do we? And so we want to make the message appealing. A great temptation when faced with those who ridicule the message of the cross or simply ignore it is to dress it up to make it more palatable to them, make it even entertaining to the fallen world. Now, if Paul had done that, he would have sought to present the message with words of wisdom. That would have been exactly what the culture demanded where he was. But if the true gospel message is folly to those who are perishing, and then I share a message with someone who's perishing that doesn't sound foolish to them, then I probably haven't shared the actual gospel. Paul says in verse 21 that God chose the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. First, pay attention to that word or that term, message preached. It's a Greek word, kerygmatos. That specifically means it's the message of a herald. And I'm not talking about our senior elder in this congregation whose name is Harold. H-E-R-A-L-D, Harold. A servant of a king or a ruler who has the job of giving the king's proclamation to the people. You see in an old movie, somebody who stands on the town square square and unrolls, unrolls a scroll and says, Hear ye, hear ye, and then he shouts out a proclamation from the king. That's the herald. He had no authority to modify the message, to help convince the people that they ought to believe it. He just proclaimed it and let it do its work. He was simply charged to proclaim the king's message to the people. The gospel, the message of the cross, is a message we must not alter or water down. We don't dress it up to make it acceptable to the world. We simply say, here is the message from the king. We're to proclaim it and leave it to do its work among the hearers. Which brings us to our last point, number four. The message of the cross is God's chosen means of saving his people. If it's God's chosen means of saving his people, then of course if we change it, we're not using God's chosen means, are we? Verse 18 To us being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel message has its own power. It is God's means to save his elect in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior. 
But as people receive that salvation through faith in him, when they believe the message of the cross, there has to be some knowledge. Saving faith includes the first element of it is what the reformers called notitia, the knowledge of the content of the message. Verse 21, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Faith is the instrument of justification, so those whom God has chosen will hear the message and believe it. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the message is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That calling there speaks of those who are called, refers to what we would call effectual calling. There's a general gospel call that goes out to the world. Think of Jesus' parable of the sower, if you want to think of an analogy here. that we, As we scatter the gospel, we, we don't know whose hearts are fertile ground for it or not, so we just scatter the seed of the gospel everywhere. And that which falls on fertile ground will grow up and yield 30, 60, and 100 fold. But that scattering of the seed would be what we call the general gospel call. As Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. The chosen there in that scenario would be those who were effectually called, uh, those who upon whom the call has a positive effect. And that's who Paul is talking about here when he says those who are called. While many Jews stumble and are offended by the message of Christ, especially his crucifixion, While many Greeks find it foolish, there are others, Jews and Greeks, who believe. To them, the gospel is Christ himself. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the wisdom of God. God's foolishness, so to speak, as man would count things foolish, is therefore wiser than man's wisdom, and his weakness is stronger than human strength. That's verse 25. Because... The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Don't be surprised or discouraged if and when people treat you like you're an absolute idiot, like you're a moron, like you're a rube or a fanatic, because you believe the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for his people is foolishness to those who are perishing. Don't be arrogant about it and say, oh, well, that makes me wise and you a fool. No, because we would be just as foolish were it not for God's grace. But do be encouraged by the fact that God tells you that those who deem themselves too wise to believe the gospel are actually exposing their own folly. The gospel exposes human folly. Don't change it. Don't water it down. Don't try to dress it up to make it more pleasing to the fallen man. But preach Christ crucified and let that message do its work. Do the work of a herald. Say, here is the message from the king. And that message will do its own work. For it is God's chosen means to save his chosen people. It is the power and wisdom of God on display. Let's pray. Lord God, we... Thank you for the message of the cross of Christ, which displays your power and wisdom.
for the salvation of many. Let us not be discouraged by opposition to it, for it exposes human folly. Let us not alter it, but embrace it and proclaim it widely for the salvation of many, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.